Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they are achieving success in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas-based real estate broker, Mark Allen. Welcome to the Multifamily Five. It's your host, Mark Allen. And today, I have Ian Mattingly from Luma Residential. Ian, how's it going? going already. You know, it's always exciting before market turns. And so I feel like we're in that moment now. So hopefully I don't get disappointed this time. Ian is one of the best operators in the business. Uh, I was very involved in the industry. I'll let you introduce yourself, but started at Apartment Realty Advisors in Denver. That's my understanding based on our conversations. It's actually started in the brokerage world and has uh, been with Luma, I think, ever since. So, Ian, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and, and uh, your current involvement? Yeah, absolutely. So you could say I started in this business when I was five years old. That, that's when my father started his property management business back in 1984. So, you know, like many kids who grow up in a family business, you know, did all the, all the nasty jobs, you pick up trash, clean pools, all that kind of stuff. And so the last thing I wanted to do was, was go into the management and operation side of the business. But I had an opportunity in the early 2000s to join a, a brand new firm, Apartment Realty Advisors uh, in Denver. Um, had a wonderful mentor in Doug Andrews and uh, his partner, Jeff Hawks, uh, who, you know, took on a green guy who had a background in technology. And the deal was I would help them with a CRM implementation. You know, this was like new technology back then um, to be able to track ticklers and ownership and all this kind of stuff. And they would sponsor me for my broker's license. So I got to, to work with some great people there, you know, building a brokerage business. Uh, we opened offices in Phoenix, Salt Lake City and during my tenure there in the back office. And then got to take over a territory with a, a wonderful mentor, Ken Green who had a distinguished career with Cobalt Baker Commercial back in the 70s and 80s and was basically a, a mentor for baby brokers. So what a tremendous opportunity to really learn and underwrite you know, billions and billions of dollars of multifamily real estate and land. So it was great, uh, but faced with a great uh, financial crisis and a market in Southern Colorado that really never had caught on fire. Um, with a two-year-old at home, I finally took my father up on his offer to come back to Dallas and did that um, and in 2007 and came back to project manage a couple million dollar renovation on a property where I'd actually been a leasing consultant in the, team, in the early 1990s for the family business. So, you know, it was funny, things came full circle, stayed on there as a property manager and then just worked my way through the roles, regional supervisor, asset management, acquisitions and moved into um, the executive levels in 2012, and then moved into the presidency here at Luna Residential in uh, 2015. And since then, I've sat on our investment committee. I oversee our day-to-day -day operations. Uh, we currently have about 6,000 units that we own in partnership and manage for our own account. Uh, we don't do any th any more third party. That's a whole nother level of headache that we find is distracting, but that's a little bit about me. That's great. And out of those, out of all your properties, most of those are 1980s. And I think many of them even purchased back in the 80s, right? So, so we really started building our own portfolio during the RTC days, 1991. We don't have anything that we 
bought directly from the RTC anymore, but we do still have some assets that we acquired in the mid to late nineties, about 1996, 90, 99 in the portfolio. We do tend to be a long-term holder, although, you know, really in the last five years, everything we bought is nineties or newer. So about a third right. of the portfolio now is either uh, mid nineties or um, early two thousands vintage. Right. Yeah, I, I know just looking at your portfolio, the majority was was probably purchased. Well, I don't know, you, you know, if they were purchased in the 90s, 1980s, mid 1980s, but still class A properties at the time. Um, and then you've been selling probably more of a you know, net seller over the past couple of years and exchanging into kind of chasing quality, higher quality assets or newer assets. Yes. Yeah, you know, no, we've definitely been a net seller. You know, we're, we're down about 20% by unit count, about 15% by AUM. You know, took advantage of the, of the market cycle to prune the portfolio a little bit and looking forward to redeploying that capital. Well, great. Um, excited to have you on today. Like I said, you're well-respected and, and I say you're one of the sharpest minds. I've, you know, had a handful of conversations with you over the years, but one of my clients, uh, Mark Hurley or Marco Hurley, you know, I know he's a, he's a sharp business guy and a sharp multifamily mind as well. And he said, he always said you were one of the sharpest. So I'm um, excited to have you on today. We're going to talk just generally, I mean, the market and, and more operations since, and that's more so your focus as the president of Luma Residential. So let's just start high level, I guess, any big concerns like and. The Texas, we'll stick to Texas since that's where your portfolio is and that's where we're, you know, doing deals and operating here. But specifically in Texas, any big changes that have come up as of recent, you know, that give you a little bit of pause? And I know you've been involved and you, you were the president of the Apartment Association of Greater Dallas. I, I believe you're involved heavily in the Texas Apartment Association, shoot, probably even the National Apartment Association. Yeah, I certainly think that's an important part of you know, the way that I can give back to an industry that's really supported me my entire life in some shape or fashion. So I, I do believe in being an advocate for our industry and remaining involved in trying to help our industry, you know, combat threats, but also move forward in our professionalism. Along those lines, you know, I think there's a number of challenges and that's, I mean, one of the things that keeps this business interesting, there, there's always challenges. You know, it's never completely smooth sailing. There's always, you know, that storm cloud here or there. You know, I think from a, a legislative perspective, unfortunately, this last round of property tax relief was was really a gift to homeowners. And property taxes and, and state funding is kind of like a balloon here in Texas. When you squeeze one side of the balloon, the other side of the balloon, the commercial property owners and operators, the business owners, we're the ones that tend to pick up the brunt of it. So I do think that property taxes and continued pressure to provide even more relief to single family homeowners is perhaps one of the biggest threats to the multifamily industry and you know, threatens to make us not cost competitive in light of the other areas of our P&L that continue to become increasingly expensive. So. You know, I would say that's kind of the top of the list. You know, the other is this move um, by certain elements of what used to be the, the party of business, you know, to becoming a more populist party. And I think you know what I'm talking about. And as part of that populism, it's become unpopular to make money. 
And so there's a number of different legislative approaches that are being supported by folks on both sides of the aisle that would essentially penalize business owners who seek to take profits from their labor. Uh, I think that as an overall thrust, when you have both uh, liberal and conservative wings of the major political parties focused on those business issues, um, you never know what could come at you. So I, I think those are sort of, that's really more of a national issue than it is here in Texas, fortunately, uh, but there's certainly elements of that here in Texas as well. Yeah. Our, our Portland team, I think does this well. They're very involved uh, with their local apartment association and advocating for, you know, owners in the Portland area. And obviously they have different challenges there than we do uh, here, but you know, that they, they are very involved and they feel like they can, they can help and advise owners on a one-off basis, but they feel like they can advocate and kind of represent them on their behalf by getting very involved in local associations and different legislation and things like that. So I myself have kind of taken that note and, and trying to get more involved here locally as well as a recent. What about just in general, like operating fundamentals? We kind of get into that a little bit. Obviously, you have a pretty big portfolio. You've got a lot of data points across both maybe workforce housing sector, but maybe some of that more gray collar housing with kind of A minus, you know, early 2000s projects as well. What are you, just what are you seeing in general across your portfolio? Yeah, so we've always been focused on that sort of B minus to A minus quality portfolio. And for good reason, because it tends to be as a long-term holder, you know, a more stable segment of the market. So within our portfolio, we certainly see it in our submarkets at large. Concessions have become the dominant paradigm. These are down, you know, one to four points, depending on which submarket you're talking about. And this is largely driven by the supply and demand imbalance. We've seen two quarters of negative absorption in DFW and across North Texas. And that's really just because of new supply that's been added. We still have robust fundamentals in North Texas and in the state of Texas overall. I mean, we continue to be the winner when you look at all the states in the union in terms of in-migration, job creation, you know, all the drivers of economic progress. Compared to many states, our inflation and cost of living remains very, very competitive. Less competitive than it might have been 10 years ago, but we're still a relative bargain compared to in many of the states uh, where we're seeing that domestic migration, Illinois, New York, California. So we've definitely been a big beneficiary there. So I'm, I'm overall very long-term optimistic, but we need to weather uh, a short-term supply and demand imbalance before those things normalize. I will say one of the things that I won't say keeps me up at night, but does worry me quite a bit is lenders' balance sheets. There was a recent report that came out this week that showed that the major banks for the first time ever have more distressed loans on their books than they have capital reserves. It was about 90 cents in reserves for every dollar of distressed debt. And obviously that's quite a long ways from where that was third quarter of last year, where it was you know over $2 of reserves uh, for every dollar of distressed debt. And anytime there's a shock to the banking system, that definitely has ripple effects throughout the broader economy and for a debt finance business like the multifamily business. Yeah. It's uncertain how that could play out for us. We're in good shape. We refinanced everything between 2015 and 2018. And so we've got a lot of long-term 
fixed rate debt in place, but there's definitely operators right now that are on the bubble and it wouldn't take much to, to tip them off the bottle bubble. But when real estate valuations start to crash, it has all kinds of knock-on effects uh, when you have debt coverage covenants and, and all sorts of things that could create challenges even for, for quality operators with low leverage like us. Yeah. I was going to ask, how does that give you cause for concern, just given that most of your debt was placed, you know, fixed rate debt 25 or 2015 to 2018, likely, I don't know, 10, 12 year uh, term debt. So are you just saying with potential ripple effect? I mean, I, I'd like to think that the agency, Spanny and Freddie will be, will be a backstop, like in, in good times or bad times. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong in saying that. It just seemed like that proved to be the case during COVID all by, and I, I guess I would preface that with the property has to qualify for agency financing. So if there's broader, like you said, if there, there is banking distress and that causes broader, uh, affects broader macro conditions in the economy, then uh, obviously fundamentals would, would soften a little bit more and maybe make it tougher to qualify for agency debt. So anyways, I'm thinking out loud, but is, I mean, is that kind of what you're getting at? If you have debt that comes due on 25 to 28? Um, I mean, that's certainly part of it. Yeah. We, we've got, you know, quite a bit of, of debt coming up between 26 and, and 29. Yeah. And these things don't tend to be short and sharp and they, they tend to, to linger on. Uh, and one of the major differences that we're seeing, I mentioned this earlier, that we have a um, more populist approach to governing from both of our major political parties. And I think that the sort of financial support that was available, you know, most recently during the COVID crisis, but, you know, even prior to that, during the great financial crisis is unlikely to be provided. And when there's not that influx of capital to help bolster financial markets. We saw how the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2000, 2008, you know, really triggered write-downs and, and restructuring of loan portfolios, the collapse of collateralized debt obligations, the failure of multiple CMBS uh, syndicates. And all of those things sort of happened because of that one domino. It's really hard to predict how these types of black swan events play out. I mean, we've seen that most recently in the, I do a little bit of uh, venture capital startup investing and advising. We saw that with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the cost of capital for startups just became so much more expensive that we, we are seeing the biggest kind of failure ratio of, of you know, startups, particularly tech startups that yeah. we've seen decades. And so it would not be surprising to me to see a similar effect in the real estate industry, if some of our major real estate lenders, uh, a number of whom are already in the press for having sort of problematic balance sheets, that would not take many failures to trigger uh, those kinds of negative repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think that, yeah, it doesn't happen overnight, even when you look at the GFC. I mean, I've said started hiking in 04, they paused in 06, and it, I mean, you know, it took almost two years, I guess, to see some of the effects there. So, you know, and you, you think of all the transactions that were happening, not only in real estate, but in the private equity world, as far as companies, and many of those were four to 500 over SOFR floating. You know, I guess with companies, you can, it's easier where you have more fixed costs and apartments, for example, it's hard to just cut payroll and eliminate staff because it's going to affect the operations of the property. 
Whereas it's maybe a little bit easier with a company to trim some of the fat, layoffs, cut product lines, whatever the case might be. More barriers to, to pull on there. Yeah, we talk all the time at Luma. You know, we, we really only have direct levers to impact maybe 15% of our operating expenses. You know, yeah. The rest of it is, is relatively fixed. I mean, insurance is going to be what insurance is. Property taxes are going to be what they are. Uh, of course, debt service, if you make those decisions strategically, how you're going to deploy that, how you're going to craft your insurance policies. Uh, but once those decisions are made, there's really not too much you can do. Those things go on rails. Yeah. What is your strategy for insurance? Just given the size of your portfolio. You know, there, as in many parts of our business, we're a market taker, not a market maker. And the lenders, to a large degree, sort of set the limit in terms of what risk they're going to allow us to take. You know, within that, we always try to take advantage of not only our pricing power, but also our risk management strategy. And there's a little bit of salesmanship to it, too. I mean, if an underwriter, you know, has 500 master portfolio programs that come across their desk, how do you stand out to that underwriter, you know, to even get a look and yeah. getting, a, getting a quote? is the key to generating some competition, which is really the only way to, to impact pricing. So we've been, for the last couple of years, we've actually been attending insurance conferences and sitting on the sidelines and just meeting directly with carriers uh, so that when Luma Residential comes across their desk, they know who we are, they can put a face to it, and they've heard our spiel about how we have a class-leading risk management approach, which we do. I mean, that's the other part of it is, you got to manage risks, especially when you're a long-term holder, you don't get to mitigate risk by turning the property and making it somebody else's problem. So right. making sure, I mean, stupid stuff like filling cracks and avoiding loose handrails can make a huge difference between getting a GL quote and not getting a GL quote. Interesting. I was going to go back to, you know, what you said about the supply. Do you have any in your head, like any case studies or like, for example, and I haven't looked at the data in quite some time, but I'm like, when I look at the number of the amount of inventory being constructed or even planned in Benton, I mean, it's pretty insane. I know you at least have one asset there, but do you have any case studies like a certain property of mine or a certain area where you've seen the effects of new supply coming online that's maybe, maybe offering concessions and affecting, you know, like your B plus or A minus quality asset? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got a couple of deals in McKinney and Allen. Uh, I mean, that's the market that's adding the most new supply right now and uh, taking over the lead from that Frisco submarket. Those are both properties where we've done a recent reposition. We acquired those in, in 2021 and you know, really at the tail end of our value add strategy right now. And we are seeing downward pressure. I mean, we're basically seeing, you know, in-place rents flatten, occupancies drop a point to a point to half. And, you know, there's a, a number of different things that we've done to respond to that. You know, one has been kind of shift the balance. We typically do kind of a two or three tier renovation approach. We think giving people options is the best way to sort of help them pick the value with price point that makes sense for them. But we're prioritizing, you know, the kind of first tier renovations over some of the knock it out solid service stuff where we're doing much less of that um, than we were in, in 21 and 22. So we're, we're trying to make sure that we are doing the things that create the biggest value proposition for the lowest cost. 
But the other things that we're doing, of course, are around retention. I mean, that's the best thing that we can do is to retain uh, an in-place resident when, when rents are flat. You, you can hold the line on rents and then you don't have to incur your, incur your turnover cost. So we're spending a lot of time, energy, and effort on that. And part of that is creating world-class resident experiences. That's always been a focus of ours. And we're using what I'm calling the trifecta of property management efficiency, automation, centralization, and offshoring to try to create the best possible experience, the lowest possible dollar. So we have an offshore team in the Philippines. You know, we've layered in AI across our resident and prospect experiences. And then we have um, a centralist team that's assisting with everything from receivables management to lease compliance and trying to take those sort of mundane, not very fun tasks off of our site staff and really turning our site staff into customer experience folks more than anything. Yeah. Interesting. Well, something you said was kind of leading into my next question. And it's, I mean, I guess you have the advantage just having purchased as a long-term owner, maybe purchase those assets five plus years ago versus those who had purchased in the last, you know, handful of years. I mean, are likely, you know, maybe in bridge loans as well, but at the basis that they purchase, it's almost like you really got to renovate and push rents, you know, to, to make sense of the deal. So anyways, like as a long-term holder, you don't have maybe some of those pressures, but so you, you have the advantage to maybe keep rents a little bit below market, keep turnover lower, lower, which obviously affects cash flow. So as a long-term owner, how do you think about, and, and obviously like, you know, we're facing some headwinds with expense inflation, rents are flattening, like you said, so cash flows are getting tighter. And as a long-term owner, how do you, how do you strategize about that as far as like putting money back into the property? I mean, some of these you've held for 10 plus years and, you know, I mean, eighties vintage properties, nineties vintage properties. I mean, you know, the 30, 40 plus years old and depending on the areas, maybe they get beat up a little more than others. So, you know, they constantly take money. So how do you think about that? You know, every property is constantly in the life cycle of obsolescence, renovation, stabilization, obsolescence, renovation, stabilization. And so you have to think in, in those terms when you're thinking about what your capital strategy is. I mean, the only way to extend that stabilization period and defer obsolescence is to have enough capital reserved to be able to fund the capital needs uh, of those communities. And then we're thinking about our debt strategies as well and trying to tie those to you know, some of those breakpoints. I mean, there's a lot that you can do on an incremental basis from cash flow uh, without significantly impacting your ability to pay dividends. So just making sure that your parking lot stays in good shape, making sure that you're keeping the, the landscaping up. I mean, these are things that require pretty low dollar investments on a highly frequent basis. But then of course you've got bigger things, right? You've got siding, you've got paint, you've got you know, building envelope, you've got roofing materials. You know, those are big checks to write. And there's really only two ways to do that. One is to grow the value of your assets so you can finance out the cash to fund it, um, where you've got to hold back enough money. And depending upon the property, depending on the asset, the investor, you know, we've done both, but it's about knowing what those things are. I mean, we do 10 year capital plans for every deal that we manage and, you know, we're modeling our cash flow and, and making our dividends based upon that because 
capital calls in this environment, well, in any environment, capital calls are never fun, but in this environment, yeah, they can be dead. And I'm kind of skipping around a little bit, but I keyed on something you said prior. And then I also keyed on just because you're a technology guy, just talking about AI and some of the centralized team. Is that, is that centralized team offshore as well? Is that the team in the Philippines or are they here locally? It's a, it's a mixed team actually. So we're able to provide 24 hour service by having onshore and offshore. And that also allows us to amortize you know, some of the expense, uh, mm-hmm. gives us better controls on the process. So yeah, it's a, it's a blended team. Yeah. So, I mean, I would imagine, does that help lean up on-site staff at the property <clears throat> and you ultimately see cost savings at, at scale? Like, would it be harder to do? I mean, I would imagine it'd be harder to do at 2000 units versus you know, 6,000 units, just because you have a little more economies of scale there. Yeah. So we have not seen expense savings on most of the portfolio for the larger properties. You know, there's, there's probably been more economies than at the smaller ones because people get sick, they go on vacation and there's still an expectation on the part of our resident profile that somebody's going to be there during normal business hours to help them with whatever it is that they need. And so we do have the sort of minimum staffing levels and, you know, on a property that already had a two-person staff, you're really not going to be able to really minimize that office staff further. But on a property that you may have had four or five or four and a half full-time office folks, you're being able to take that down to three, you know, more than offsets the additional cost of of that uh, centralization team. But where we do see the biggest benefit, as I mentioned, is really in the resident experience, the prospect experience, making sure that they get rapid attention. We all have tiny attention spans these days. It's a bit like something's in progress being handled. They're getting frequent updates and they have kind of a concierge level of service. Uh, yeah, that's really where we see the benefit and we're seeing renewal rates, you know, north of 70% on many of these communities. Yeah. And do you think it translates across? I mean, I, I, I know some of your properties are like arbors, but you know, it's not like you brand them. I guess you go in the office, they're going to see Luma, but I would imagine that customer experience, that high level customer experience, if they're moving across the Metroplex, they may want to see if they can move into another Luma uh, property. Yeah. I mean, I've never really bought into the kind of branded experience philosophy, uh, you know, folks pick the place that they want to live because of the people they meet there, the location, the aesthetics, the amenities, and, and if it's even considered at all, the property manager or property owner is, is kind of way, way down the list of uh, priorities. But to your point, once they've had that experience, we do see this all the time that people want to you know, transfer and, and stay because they believe that you know, that experience um, has been positive enough that they're going to prioritize that. So they have to have that experience first uh, before it becomes a priority. And so it's still a relatively small percentage uh, to, you know, are actively seeking to live at a Luma community. You know, maybe if we were 10 times our size, that would make, make a difference. We would have enough variety in locations that it might be more of a decision point. But for now, I think it's really all about creating that experience, you know, for those existing residents and the prospects who find us. I'm sure for your employees as well, you know, the, the on-site staff, 
manager, leasing agent. I mean, usually they're very people oriented. And so like the less you can take off their plate or the more you can take off their plate and some of those tedious back office through the centralized team or through other technology, I'm sure it's freeing up their time to, you know, to focus on the residents or do things maybe more so enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. The a resident experience or prospect experience starts with the employee experience. So that's our core focus is if we create a world-class employee experience, become an employer of choice, you know, we attract the best people, we retain them, they get the best training development and experience, and they're going to be able to provide that class leading experience to the residents. Yeah. So I would imagine that experience, the customer experience, they may be having the different pricing structures, different level of renovations, different pricing structures. But how, how else might you separate? And it's kind of going back to a lot of the new supply, but an Alan McKinney, for example, and maybe it's just like you're capturing, you know, a, di a different level of, or a different resident than someone that's going to move into a brand new 2022 construction. But anyways, how do you separate some of these B plus A minus properties versus some of the new ones that may be offering one, two months, you know, free rent? Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with location and asset selection, really, you know, so we, prioritize lower density, mature landscaping, these sort of intangibles, or I, I suppose they're tangible, but they create an intangible effect when you go into that property versus the brand new property next door that has a four foot tall trees and the sort of generic looking, but one of my partners, Rich Kelly, loves to, to bash the midsize wrap product that's become sort of the dominant paradigm in that 2015 and to, to 2020 construction because it's kind of, it's box, it's a box on a box. Whereas, you know, our traditional garden style communities do have a different appeal and, and a little bit more character. So I think that's where it starts locationally. Also to sort of maximize the real estate value, a lot of developers will build on a pipe stem lot or they'll bury the multifamily back behind a single family or things like that. Whereas being selective about location, making sure we're on a hard corner or wrap a hard corner um, so that we have good exposure to drive by traffic. You know, yes, everybody finds their way via GPS these days, um, but it can make the difference between getting one tour or two tours if it's easy for them to get into your parking lot. And if they have to navigate through a neighborhood to get to you, you know, maybe you don't get that tour or maybe they stop somewhere else along the way. So things like that, I think can make a tremendous difference. Obviously, once you've made that choice, it's it's hard to to change it. But you know, some of the other things that we we do is try to make sure that drive up experience is a, an attractive one. You know, it's very common these days for community offices to be nice and beautiful, but they often will sort of be surrounded by stuff that's not so beautiful because everybody's trying to save bucks where they can. And so making sure that we're addressing and dressing those buildings that surround that drive up area. We did a property in McKinney where we have a different paint scheme on the first two buildings because you have to drive by them to get to that office. And so we did sort of a, a high impact, high visual. We did murals on the sides, you know, things like that, that can really make that property stand out in somebody's mind after they've had that experience. And then the other, you mentioned technology. I, I do think technology can play a valuable role because people are not just visiting these properties in person, they're visiting them virtually and making sure that we have our 
full suite of options for folks to really evaluate us. So whether it's a video tour, whether it's a you know 3D kind of video game walkthrough experience, whether it's static photography, you know, whatever people want to see, we want to make sure that we have that available to them um, in an attractive, branded, and very easy to manage, fast loading website. So making sure that our digital curb appeal is as attractive as our physical curb appeal. So that's really, really important. And for many companies, we see that that's sort of an afterthought. Now, I often wonder if some of those mid-rise wrap boxes, as Rich uh, calls them, if in 40 years from now, there will be investors that are shying away. I don't want flat roofs, see flat roofs, pitch roofs. I want pitch roofs to go for the garden style pitch. And uh, we'll see, maybe I'll still be brokering 40 years from now. Well, the archetype, uh, I mean, particularly North Texas, the archetype of, type of a home is a pretty deeply embedded psychological um, component and, and yeah, the more yeah. your property looks like a whole, yeah, I think the easier it is for folks to visualize themselves there. It may be different in cities where high rises and mid rises are the dominant method. Never owned in New York City, never want to vote in New York City, but I imagine things are probably pretty different. Yeah. What about just marketing in general right now? Are you doing anything just to make your marketing dollars go farther, more efficient? And I guess, has anything changed from your perspective? Obviously, the, the, Industry is always evolving, but anything come to mind that's changed over the last few years when it comes to, I guess, driving that top end of the funnel and probably specifically with technology. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say this is an area that we we've, we've been able to cut costs. You know, where we have not. You know, we've seen pretty steady. I mean, twenty twenty one kind of marked the low watermark on a price for move in in the past five years, and you know, just costs along with everything else have been increasing. Uh, and, and it really doesn't matter, it, you know, if it's pay-per-click, if it's ILS. I mean, the nice thing is with pay-per-click advertising, the social advertising, we can throttle that more effectively. And so while the overall dollar per move-in spend is not coming down, we've been able to deploy that more efficiently to match volume to demand. And so, you know, where we have that availability creeping up, you know, we can, we can move more efficiently, but the overall, you know, cost per move in metric then sort of is really the only one that matters, you know, that unfortunately is still, still up, you know, 15% a year since 2021. Yeah. With all this, you know, technology advancing and, you know, I think I can't remember the exact software, but. I, I've looked at it in the past, but basically it tracks, I think, geofence or something with cell phones. You can see, you know, where people are going, where, where their home base is. But like, if you're evaluating from a commercial perspective, maybe you're looking to buy uh, Starbucks, you can see how that Starbucks, Starbucks rates as far as like traffic within that specific location versus the rest of the Metroplex versus the rest of the state of Texas. But I would imagine like something with that technology, it's like just autom automation of marketing to try to, you know, pull in leads, whether it be through social media outreach, like, cause it can see maybe, you know, Hey, they live within a three mile radius around your apartment community. And I'm just thinking out loud a little bit, but it seems like the technology is getting pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly been able to see staffing efficiencies, you know, on the marketing team. You know, one marketer equipped with a good lead syndication platform and, and you know, a couple you know, assisted design tools. 
easily manages our portfolio, our size, where, you know, we might've needed three or four folks to run a social campaign plus the pay-per-click plus, 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 plus. So yeah, we definitely see efficiencies there just from a kind of management oversight as well as content creation, but for better or worse, everybody else is seeing <laughs> many of those same efficiencies. Uh, so it's not truly a competitive advantage, but it is you know, something that has been beneficial to us as operators for sure. Have you, or are you developing any propri uh, proprietary technology or do you, you know, just work with other technology vendors, um, that supply some of the AI technology, whatever it may be. Um, so we do develop in-house solutions that, that plug into our overall platform. And, and we, we sort of call it our, our Luma modern digital workplace or MDW, but many of these things are sort of off the shelf products that we've modified to meet our needs and then tried to combine, you know, within our Microsoft 365 environment in a unique way. But yeah, we have, you know, a variety of Power Automate apps and branded apps that, you know, help us do things a little bit more efficiently and in many cases more cost-effectively than going out to the market and buying, you know, commercially available products. But it, it requires a level of commitment to maintaining these platforms and programs, uh, as well as, you know, a level of uh, support that, you know, many organizations would struggle with. That's great. So last question, where do you see Luma 10 years from now? 10 years from now, you know, I think the next 10 years are going to be one of the most interesting decades, you know, technology tends to drive you know, some of the, the business cycles uh, that we've seen really since the introduction of the personal computer in the 1980s. So you saw a tremendous productivity boom, you know, in the early 90s driven by personal computing. You saw another tremendous productivity boom, you know, in the early to you get know, through the wide adoption of the internet and cloud-based systems. I think we are on the cusp of another productivity boom driven by artificial intelligence. Each of those productivity booms has been kind of preceded by a recession. You know, you had the, kind of the telecom meltdown in the early, you know, during the move to cloud-based in, in the last decade, you know, we saw the great financial crisis. So I think there's a pattern here and I'm very excited for it. As I said, there's always the potential for black swans, uh, but for Luma in particular, you know, being uh, an organization that I think is perhaps more forward looking than many in our industry. I think we'll be able to take full advantage of this. And, you know, with our history as a 40 year old company, the institutional knowledge that we've gathered over that time and our focus on elevating quality of life for all of our communities, not just our employees and residents, but our investors as well. I, I see a tremendous opportunity for us to grow, to grow beyond the borders of Texas. And I don't think it'll take us 10 years to get there. I, I think the next five years are going to be some of the most productive in Luma history. Awesome. Well, Ian, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope you had a great weekend. What's the best way for the listeners to, and I know you're running up, you're running a company, you're extremely busy, so maybe you don't want them to reach out directly, but just to <laughs> stay connected with Luma Residential and, and keep tabs on what you're doing. And I know you're really involved and connected with a lot of folks anyways. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, they, you know, we, we have a, a strong presence on LinkedIn, you know, our brand managers on there all the time, you know, trying to make sure that the world knows what we're up to, that we, you know, remain an employer of choice, but you know, folks are always welcome to reach out to me. My, my email is my first initial plus last name at lumapm.com. Check out our website. You can connect with me there as well. Awesome. And thanks again. Appreciate it and look forward to uh, meeting again. Likewise. Thanks, Mark. Take care.